Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. Today, in honor of International Men's Day on November 19th, we have a special program, and you're a big part of it, because we asked you, HPE team members around the world, to send us your top men's health questions and concerns. What do you want to know about men's health? Listen in. The insights just might make a big difference in your life. Hi there, I'm Bob Peacock. Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. We've all heard the facts. No matter where you're listening in the world, men have a shorter life expectancy than women by about five or six years. And about 70% of the time, it is because of health issues that could have been prevented if we simply changed our lifestyle. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. We've got two special guests to tackle the men's health questions posed by HPE team members. HPE's Chief People Officer, Alan May, and physician, author, and one of our most popular guests from past episodes, Dr. Ranish Senha. First, I'd like to welcome HPE's Chief People Officer, Alan May. Alan, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Bob. I really appreciate being part of this. It should be a lot of fun uh, and very informative. And one of the things that I'm particularly proud of, and I think our team members are as well, is that HPE seen around the world as a leader in uh, in this whole area of behavioral health programs uh, as part of our wellness offerings. So delighted to be part of this and to, to learn more as we go forward. Well, as I mentioned in this episode, in honor of International Men's Day on November 19th, we're putting our focus on men's health. We asked HPE team members all over the world to send us their top men's health questions, and we received many great questions, clearly too many to get to every individual question. So what we did is we bucketed them up into to main topics so we can try to answer most of the questions that we received. To answer those questions, I'd like to welcome back one of this podcast's most popular guests. The episode that he appeared in from July has been listened to over 2,000 times. Our guest is Dr. Ron Sinha. He's an internal medicine physician, author of The South Asian Health Solution, and an expert in wellness. His work has been featured in Fortune Magazine and the LA Times. Welcome back, Dr. Ron. It's so great to be back here again. I was very thrilled to hear that we got such a great response from the first show. So really looking forward to doing round two here. Ron, what have you been working on lately? Yeah, you know, I've been busier than ever. You know, I've been lecturing on health and wellness to Silicon Valley companies for over a decade. And you can imagine that health is now really the top priority for almost every company that I work with, which to me in a lot of ways is one of the positives out of this whole pandemic is people in leadership and companies are really making health the top priority. But as I've been giving these talks, I'm actually excited to talk about men's health because this is a topic I haven't spoken about in a while. And as I was thinking about this, because I know we've got a lot of questions to answer, I thought I'd start off with a basic framework, which will really help provide a little bit more context and flavor as we go through the questions. And the way I really think about men's health when I talk to patients in the clinic or I give programs is I call it the three M's, kind of fittingly for men's health. Just think about the three M's. And the first one really is mental health. And I'm sure we have a lot of questions around that, but mental health is something we all have to take care of. The second one is really metabolic health, and we'll jump into the details of that later on. 
But when I say metabolic health, I literally mean how do we take nutrients from our, from our food and convert that into energy? Sounds like a simple process, but metabolic health is now being shown to be the foundation for not just diabetes and heart disease, but also for Alzheimer's, for cancer. Almost every top leading cause of death in men and women can be tied to metabolic health. And then the last one is musculoskeletal health. I'm seeing a lot of my patients right now with quarantine, back pain, neck pain, migraines, all types of things, um, jaw pain. So we'll definitely talk a lot about that too, but just wanted to provide that through 3M framework, because when I think about my working day or when I talk to patients, I'm always trying to make sure that we're sound and doing all the right things with those 3Ms. Perfect. So we've got a lot to cover. Um, let's just jump in and tackle our, our questions, starting with mental health issues. Uh, Alan, would you like to ask the first question? Yeah, Bob, I really would. And uh, again, Dr. Ron, thanks so much for joining us and for your perspective. And you know, you mentioned um, COVID and, and living through the pandemic and the stress that's provided uh, both behaviorally as well as physically on so many people. You know, from a mental health perspective, has the pandemic affected men differently from women? Yeah, you know, in my practice, uh, I see men and women. I'd say I probably have a higher population of men that I see in the clinic. And I would say the way we've been affected and the way men generally process stress is different. And I want to say right off the bat, as we talk about men's health, I am going to make some generalizations and stereotypes. And I want to be respectful of the fact that, you know, not all men behave and respond in this way. But typically, when I've had heart-to-heart -heart conversations, one thing we find with men is we do have a tendency to internalize a lot of the emotions and stress. And I kind of joke with people that I'm a rec recovering internalizer and ruminator. So I, I myself had had to really learn the skill of being more expressive with emotions. But, but you know, when I talk to my patients in the clinic or I'm talking to my male friends, often I've got to do a little bit of digging to really get them to open up about vulnerabilities and fears. And it's really important, Alan, because a lot of us, we have reflexive habits in terms of how we mask those internalized emotions. So we might do it through intense physical exercise. We might do it through other sorts of habits. You know, maybe we're binge watching Netflix. We might be doing other things to sort of numb the pain, but we tend to keep those emotional um, emotions bottled up inside. And multiple studies have shown that really keeping those emotions repressed can cause all types of havoc with our immune system and overall health. So I think one of the keys that I've learned and I'm trying to share with my male patients and my male friends and my male family members is how can we create healthy outlets to unbottle some of those emotions that are really trapped deep inside. To that point, um, as you think about ways that men perhaps can cope with emotional and stressful situations at work or at home during the pandemic, uh, any specific suggestions? What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, if we just think, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty practical person. So when I give talks on stress and health, um, I'm literally talking to a lot of left-brainers and engineers. So I like to sort of take maybe more holistic philosophies and make them more scientific. So when you think about emotions, just think of them as being energy states. So when we're feeling fear, anger, frustration, that's literally an energy that's basically trapped inside our body. And those of us that are just sitting in front of screens all day and night, we're not getting a chance to release that energy in a healthy way. So some of the ways that I recommend, and I do this myself personally, and I recommend to my patients is number one, a very simple way is through breathing. You know, one thing that people don't realize is when we're sitting in front of the computer, Alan, a lot of us actually take very shallow breaths and two thirds of us, when we type emails, we actually literally stop breathing. And whenever you shorten your breaths and you take uh, insufficient breaths, 
you send a stress response to your brain that all of a sudden makes coping with emails and stressful situations very challenging. So just being mindful of the way you breathe can have a profound impact on how you manage stress during your workday. The second is physical. You know, the interesting thing, Alan, is I'm doing a lot of video visits, so I'm literally getting to see patients while they're in their bedrooms or their work offices, and I can already tell that they've been sitting for hours and hours on end, and I'm teaching them to just move in between their meetings. Can they physically move their body? Because when we physically move our body, we can release some of that pent-up energy. So that's another thing. And then a third one I tell people is just, you know, doing some things that are fun. You know, so believe it or not, sometimes in between meetings, I've grabbed my guitar and I'm practicing a few chords, you know, or I'm trying to teach myself Japanese. So I might actually look over a workbook page of some Japanese characters. We often think of doing these things as something on the weekend or maybe after work, but I'm really teaching patients, how do you integrate these outlets during your workday? Because we're all, we're all like pressure cookers, right? We're building up so much pressure throughout the day. And then we're waiting for the weekend or that magical vacation, which is so distant for most of us in this environment that we're not getting a chance to release that stress. So physical exercise, you know, breathing, hobbies, obviously um, spending time to socialize, all these things can be wonderful ways of outletting some of that pent-up pressure. Well, it uh, really triggers in my mind um, a notion, what I call white space, that uh, particularly now, if you can create what I call white space, clean space on your calendar, to your point, not necessarily in the weekend, not necessarily in the evening, if you can get a, a random half hour, hour, and then do something different. Um, Practice a musical instrument, go outside, uh, do another project, read part of a book that you wanted to read. You know, things along those lines that keep your mind more agile and your body more agile. So you really just don't get in kind of what I call this COVID fog rut. So um, great, great suggestions. You know, another question we received uh, that I'd like your perspective on is um, as follows. It said, uh, when you can see that a male friend is really struggling with life, not getting on with people, not making good decisions. How do you get them to a doctor or a counselor or a psychotherapist? And how do you keep them making and attending appointments? They may insist that they're fine and that the people around them are the ones not uh, that are being unreasonable. But how do you approach the subject without them never talking to you again? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. You know, literally, I, I wrote up a piece on this, and it was a more general topic about how do you get family members that you care about change, uh, to make healthy lifestyle changes? And you would think that me being in the area of health and wellness, I wish I could say that all my family members followed my advice, but it's really not the case. And actually, one of the challenges, Alan, is when you have people that are very close to you, so this could be a spouse or siblings, a partner, somebody that you really care about, the thing is you are so close to that person's heart that when you make suggestions, often that is perceived as being hypercritical. So the, the same advice that my wife gives to me that my friend gave me might be perceived as being nagging when it comes from my wife, but for my friend, it might be constructive advice. And, I, and we face this all the time. So I think for all, a lot of us, it creates a lot of stress trying to get our teenagers, trying to get our loved ones to make healthy changes. But sometimes we have to step back and realize that we have this privileged, intimate space with these loved ones. And sometimes, even though we have the best things in our intention, we may not be the proper change agent. So that's my first point is try to find the right change agent. Is there a friend, another relative, a work colleague? Is there maybe a webinar? Hopefully, maybe this um, conversation we're having. Can that possibly produce the change rather than you having to repetitively try to probe that person and what they perceive as being nagging? 
The second thing I tell people is lead by example. You know, so I do a lot of parental workshops for families and parents are complaining to me about the fact that they can't their, get their kids to do this or exercise or do that. And it's creating a lot of conflict in the family. And I tell them, you know what, sometimes you have to step back and instead of pushing your kids or your spouse to exercise, you start doing it yourself, you know, and let them see over days, weeks and months how you feel, how you look, and that will consciously or subconsciously, um, you know, allow some of those changes to happen. And lastly, the third thing, and this is the toughest one, is sometimes, Alan, we just have to let go. And I had to do this with a family member of mine in India, where I think I became so obsessed and concerned about their health that at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I had a conversation and said, listen, I know I've been hounding you about your health for a while. I deeply love you and care about you, but I think right now I'm going to give you your space. And if you ever need to reach back to me and you need resources, I'm here to help you. And I think that's good for your own peace of mind. And that will allow that person freedom to maybe tap into a different change agent or something else, or maybe down the road, they'll come back to you. So those are kind of my approaches with loved ones and typically those um, stubborn males that don't want to see doctors. Great advice. Uh, let's talk about some, some aging issues, Dr. Ron. What are some men's health issues that we need to be aware of as we get older? Yeah, you know, the most common question I get is around testosterone specifically. So a lot of people are really concerned. So some of the patterns that they were seeing before COVID and even now is the fact that they're feeling a lot of fatigue. They have no interest in sex, or even if um, sex is um, happening, basically they're not able to perform to their expectation. So often we sort of pinpoint that all around the hormone testosterone, and I can use testosterone as a talking point, but really when it comes to one of the key um, issues that men are worried about, it's really how do they perform better, whether that's in the bedroom, in the office, on the sports field, et cetera. And if we think about the scientific lifestyle factors that have the greatest impact on performance and testosterone levels, I, I use a simple mnemonic in the office and I basically call it sex, okay? So the S stands for sleep and stress and the X reminds us about exercise. Sleep, I just want, I can't imagine, I just can't highlight enough what a profound impact sleep has on testosterone levels. So when we're not sleeping sufficiently, when we're not getting particularly deep-based sleep, testosterone levels take a huge hit. So all of us I know can get away with, you know, probably earlier bedtimes and better quality sleep, but make that a huge, huge priority. The other thing I tie very closely to sleep is alcohol. Many of us I know through the stressful period might be turning to alcohol a little bit more than we should. And even though that might help you fall asleep and you might feel good from that, you know, if you track your sleep data, and I've tracked a lot of sleep data in myself and my patients, you will find that often you will lose out on deep phase sleep, and that can take a huge hit on your testosterone level. So sleep is a big part of it. The second part of that is stress management. We can de definitely dig deeper into that, but stress has very um, adverse effects on testosterone because the cortisol stress hormone can actually inhibit that. And then with exercise, exercise is kind of like a Goldilocks thing. I have some patients that are exercising more than ever because they have more free time, and over-exercising at high intensities can actually inhibit testosterone. Under-exercising, where you're sedentary all day, is sending a signal to our body that we don't really need muscle and strength because this person sits for 14 to 16 hours a day, so then testosterone is actually inhibited. So you've got to find the sweet spot for exercise. And then lastly, obviously, nutrition is a big part of it. We can dig into that more. And then the schedule, I love what Alan said earlier about white space. Having a regular, consistent schedule that has space having regular bedtimes, eating times. A lot of it, because of COVID-19, our schedules are very haphazard. But when our body is in proper rhythm, our hormones are actually secreted at a optimal rate. So those are some things I do to really manage testosterone and overall hormonal health. 
Terrific. Alan, you want to ask the next one? Yeah, you know, one of our team members asked a specific question. Let me go ahead and quote it. It's, uh, hey, I feel like my recovery from exercise, you know, your X in your, in your uh, acronym there, has become more difficult the last couple of years. Uh, this particular team member notes that they'll be 60 in a couple of weeks. It's very annoying. I'm eating well. Okay, check. I'm sleeping well. Check. Dr. Ron, you mentioned how important that is. But it's hard to recover from more than four gym sessions per week. Can anything be done? The good news is yes, there are things that can be done. And just to inspire you, any of you that watch professional sports over the last several years should be encouraged by the fact that professional athletes are excelling in later into their 40s now. It's unbelievable. You look at somebody like Tom Brady or other pro athletes, look at Roger Federer. It is incredible what they're able to accomplish with their bodies. And the secret to this is not that they're training harder, they're actually recovering better. And you don't need to have a personal training team to do this. They have found, and this is very different than athletes from 20, 30 years ago, they have found that optimizing sleep will improve recovery um, dramatically. So that's a big part of it. They have found that focusing on nutrition has a huge impact on this. In the old days, basketball players and athletes, they would train hard and they'd guzzle a bunch of Gatorade, they'd eat junk food. But now they find that when they're eating a very healthy, nutrient-dense diet, their muscles and joints are recovering better. Now, I'm going to give you a specific trick that really helped me because, you know, me, I'm going to be turning 50 next year. I've got 16-year-old twin boys. We love playing basketball. And what would crush me is sometimes we'd play for several hours. The next day, I'd be sore all over, and they pretty much acted like nothing happened. And that's, that, that's the benefit of youth. When you're young, you recover within 24 hours or less. But there's a hack that you can do to make yourself recover quicker. And I call it recovery while you work. So right now, while we're doing this podcast, I literally am doing a hamstring stretch right now. So I'm teaching a lot of my employees during your meetings, you can stand and stretch your hamstring. You can actually activate your core by using resistance bands. You can use self-massage tools like foam rollers, lacrosse balls, all these things. So for me, my work day is actually also my recovery day. And the beauty of that, Alan, is if somebody you know pings me and says, let's go for a hike or a run at 4 or 5 p.m., my body's already limber and recovered. You know, what normally happens is what do we do? We might stretch a little bit before a run or a jog, and then maybe we'll stretch a little bit after that. But then we sit for like 10, 12 hours, and then all of a sudden, we're exercising after prolonged periods of being sedentary. Your joints need to be limber, they need to be strong, they need to be lubricated, and you can do that all of that throughout the course of a workday. And as you do that, you will find that you'll be able to work out more frequently with far less soreness. So for, for me, the goal is not to work out harder, it's to recover faster. And that's just a different perspective, but it'll make you feel decades younger once you get that down. Great advice. In fact, it reminds me of another acronym that I've heard, um, and I know you're giving the advice, not me, Dr. Ron, but which is frequency, intensity, and time. Um, when you oh, think yeah. about your exercise, the most important factor is just frequency. And sometimes it's not even necessarily, quote, working out. It's taking the stairs. It's taking a walk. You know, it's doing other things that your point are physically active. So it doesn't have to be kind of this, you know, manic, intense type of um, exercise constantly. In fact, that tends to wear people down. Now, um, another question we got is more around, you know, the age-old question of weight gain, right? And particularly as it uh, correlates with age. Um, in an earlier episode that you appeared on, you talked about the dangers of belly fat specifically. What do we need to know about avoiding weight gain and reducing belly fat? 
Yeah. And actually, you, you brought up such a I just want to do, double click on what you said about the frequency, the intensity and the timing, because this is a big factor with belly fat. So with belly fat at a very high level, let's think about the major factors in men. Um, in men, typically, it is diet and it's exercise. So if we're going to basically hone in on diet, the frequent causes within diet are really excess processed food and especially carbohydrate consumption, because that triggers a production of a hormone called insulin. And insulin in excessive amounts causes more belly fat storage. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go on a zero-carb diet, but we have to make sure that our carbohydrate, which is basically just chains of glucose molecules, our carbohydrate intake, Alan, it's got to be proportional to our physical activity levels. So in my practice, for example, I take care of very sedentary engineers that maybe walk less than two to 3,000 steps a day. They have to consume a very restrictive carbohydrate diet until I can get them more physically active. On the other end of the spectrum, I've got patients that are elite athletes, and they can consume three to four to five times as much carbohydrates because their muscles are constantly in need of energy. So when you mention the frequency, this is so important. When I ask people about exercise, they'll tell me that I take a 30-minute walk in the evening. I'm like, that's great that you're doing that. But what are you doing throughout the rest of the day? And if you're spending that day sitting, your metabolism is going to be in a fat storage state. So every 20, 30 minutes, set a reminder on your desktop, your phone, use a special app to remind you to stand up and move around for at least three to five minutes. And that will keep your body burning fatty acids throughout the day. So that's the physical activity part, along with obviously aerobic level and exercise. But then also keep track of the excessive carbohydrate consumption and make sure you're eating within tighter windows of time. Many of my patients are starting in the morning. They're up so late that they're snacking and eating into the wee hours of the night. And that's a cultural thing. Like for my culture in India, it's often very common to have dinner at 9 or 10 p.m. So I'm getting a lot of those patients to really pull their eating time earlier to like 6 or 7 p.m. And that can have a huge impact on sleep and also burning off some of that belly fat. So those are some key, key factors right there. We're all really aware, I think, of the importance of getting regular checkups. What are some of those tests and screenings that men should be getting uh, at various ages? And let's stay, let's start with 30 somethings and, and work our way up. Yep. So, you know, going back to our sort of framework, remember we talked about mental health, metabolic health, musculoskeletal, and I guess a fourth them might be malignancy or cancer screening. Mm -hmm. So metabolism is such a center point of diseases that we want to make sure metabolism is working properly. So we can do that. We can check that through some simple blood tests. So for example, checking your fasting cholesterol and your blood sugar metrics, screening for diabetes, that really should happen early in life. I mean, even in our 20s or 30s, we should have a baseline lipid and diabetes panel done, especially if you have a family history. So that's sort of metabolism. There might be some other markers to check along with that. The other M I mentioned is malignancy or cancer screening. So you want to make sure you're getting age and risk appropriate cancer screening done. So in general, obviously, there's a lot of grids and guidelines we can refer you to. But typically, you really want to start thinking about this when you're 35, when you're 40 years old, already start having the conversations with your doctor. For most average risk men, you know, prostate cancer screening, the discussion will start at age 50. Colon cancer screening starts at 50. But if you have risks, for example, your family history, your genetics, or your ethnicity, if you're African-American, you need to start those conversations in your 40s. So for prostate cancer, if you're African-American, you start talking to your doctor at age 40. Um, for colon cancer, I still think 40 is good. Some foundation 
shouldn't say 45, but African-Americans are disproportionately affected by prostate cancer and colon cancer. The colon cancer, obviously, with, with, with uh, the tragic death of Chadwick Boseman, the famous actor, um, I think it's really highlighted that. But we really, really want to make sure we're um, looking at those cancer screening risks um, as early as possible. And talk to your doctor. I think the problem with some of the grids and guidelines out there is they don't always take those family history and risks into consideration. So connect to your doctor as soon as you can and find out what the right age and the right test is to do. Speaking of tests, uh, one person wrote, why are men afraid of doctors? Another wrote, my husband will be turning 50 this year and really hasn't been good about keeping up with annual physicals. He has a true fear of going to the doctor. How do we help him overcome this? At this point, uh, he really needs to get a physical and start getting certain screenings. So fear of doctors, what can we do about it? Yeah, you know, it's like what you don't know can't hurt you, right? And and men are very scared about their own mortality, right? Um, and like I told you, um, we have um, a major addiction to workaholism, and that's something I face um, in my work as well, too. So often we will always put work as a top priority, and we'll always say that, listen, I can get that colonoscopy later, and we keep pushing that further and further out. So I think the the, the easiest thing you can do is if you can get the man in your life to make even one change, like can they even schedule a blood test without seeing a doctor? You know, literally now the video visits are so universal. I've encouraged a lot of my female patients that are trying to get their husbands to get their care done. I tell them, listen, I know your husband doesn't want to see me. I'm going to put an order in for a blood test and let him get his glucose and these tests done. And then I reframe it as, listen, I'm not screening for a deadly disease. I just want to see how his metabolism's working, right? Is he burning fat? Um, you know, how's his energy levels? So sometimes reframing it from, you know, a mortality issue in terms of dying from cancer or heart disease to more like optimizing health and energy, just reframing in that way can get the man's foot in the door. And then once they develop that trust with the practitioner, so the other key part is really finding a practitioner that um, men can connect with, then you can sort of talk about other things that can be useful. But once they get their foot in the door and get some basic tests done, I find it's much easier than to gradually layer on some of the other tests. So, so be gentle. I think when you overwhelm them and say, you've got six different tests that you're overdue for, get them done, see a doctor, see an eye doctor, see these specialists, then they sort of just tune you out and they don't get anything done, right? So just baby steps is key. Very good. Yeah, that's great advice. I think kind of uh, slow, but sure. And, and look, when it comes down to it, just about anything in life, data is your friend. So, mm -hmm. you know, your emphasis, uh, Dr. On, particularly on, you know, just getting the lab work and, and getting some of the basics, um, you know, think about it. I think men need to reflect a little bit more that um, information is power. And so make sure that uh, a healthcare provider has information about how your body's doing and uh, and they can help uh, help you and, you know, help, help keep you well as you go through that. Totally. You know, as the chief people officer, one of my responsibilities is uh, also providing health care insurance to employees in many places around the world. And, and on a, an anonymized basis, on an aggregate basis, I want to emphasize not individually, but on an aggregate basis, we obviously take a look at what are certain health issues that are more pronounced, uh, and in particular for, for men. And three really have stood out uh, over the last uh, several years. Um, prostate cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. I was wondering if we could take just a little time to uh, address each one of those. Maybe start with prostate cancer. Background, what do we really need to know? What are some of the warning signs? How can we protect ourselves and reduce the risk of prostate cancer? 
So, you know, prostate cancer has gone through a lot of controversy in terms of screening guidelines and what we as men need to do to prevent prostate cancer. And really, the most important thing you need to remember is with prostate cancer, if you are average risk, and so when you think about risk, again, I use a lot of acronyms and memory tools here, but I tell people with prostate and colon cancer, just think of the three A's. I call them the triple A's. The first A is age, right? So for average risk, you start thinking about this, you get your screening test done at age 50. But if you've got additional risks, then you got to think about it in your 40s. So the other A's are age. The other A is African-American, which we talked about already. And the third A is ancestry. So ancestry meaning, is there a direct family member with a family history of prostate cancer? Or is there a gene that's in your family or that you've been diagnosed with, like the BRCA gene for breast cancer, that can be checked in men. And if they have a positive test, their risk of prostate cancer goes up. But I think your goal really is to identify your risks and then start having the conversations with your doctor. There's no longer an indication for routine prostate um, PSA testing anymore because PSA has its downsides when you overscreen people. So there is a process of shared decision-making that needs to take place with your physician to identify what is the right testing regimen and frequency. And a lot of men, after they hear the pluses and minuses, they decide that they don't want to get PSA testing. And really, in some, some men, that's actually perfectly appropriate. Well, let's talk a little bit maybe about heart disease then um, in a lot of places, it's the number one killer of men around the world. Um, what are some of the things we should be doing to reduce our risk for heart disease? I know you've mentioned some of them around diet, around exercise, but uh, how do you really frame that up and, and what should we really keep top of mind? Yeah. So one thing I don't want us to overlook with heart disease is the number one reversible risk factor for heart disease is still smoking. And I think smoking is something we don't really talk about that much anymore because, you know, obviously smoking is a habit has gone down so much. But I do want to say that many of my patients in this current pandemic that were former smokers have picked up smoking again. And many folks from other countries where smoking is much more predominant. And we have employees all over the world, um, you know, that live in various parts of the globe. A lot of people have restarted smoking. So please do everything you can to quit smoking, number one. The second thing is heart disease, as I talked about before, is a metabolic disease. So the physical activity is so essential. And this is my big worry now in our pandemic is people become so sedentary, they don't realize that their aerobic function has actually gone down. As much as we talk about, Alan, cholesterol, blood pressure, and all these other risk factors for heart disease, people often overlook the fact that your level of aerobic fitness is probably one of the greatest indicators of how long you live. So if you're getting walks in and you're exercising, again, we talked about the importance of tracking. I want to know how fast can you walk a mile or jog a mile. You want to track those numbers. And now we have so many tools to track, whether it's an app on our phone or a smartwatch, you want to see those numbers improve with time. But if you're getting short of breath, even trying to walk a half mile or going up a couple of flights of stairs, that's a major, major risk for heart disease. Nutrition's the other big part which we focused on, so making sure you're mindful about the quality and the timing of the food that you take in. But those are really the key things that I look at. And the last thing I just want to reiterate this point is I've been very concerned about the fact that a lot of our patients, a lot of our employees have disconnected from the healthcare system over the last several months. They've been very fearful about seeing their doctor. And as a result of that, when I proactively reach out to them, many of them, Alan, their blood pressures have gotten worse, their glucose is worse, they've gained weight. And the problem is those things can happen without you even knowing it. So be sure if you hadn't had your blood test checked, get them checked, you know, schedule a video visit with your doctor and get your health back on track. Because aside from this, I know this is on our list, aside from these metabolic disorders, COVID-19, I tell people, is a metabolic disorder. You get it through an infection, but whether you thrive and survive or you have a severe complication, 
depends on your metabolism and how you process glucose, how you manage your blood pressure. So be sure you get those numbers checked and stay connected to your doctor. Yeah, great advice. And uh, again, one thing I'll add just personally, um, you know, years ago, I went out and just went ahead and bought a nice uh, blood pressure cuff. And I make sure I take my blood pressure once a week uh, and, you know, make sure stay in check and, you know, and obviously checking uh, the other vitals that I can at the same time. And there's also, you know, a number of things available now. Fitbits, for example, yeah. have the ability for you to get real-time data uh, about your body. Now, you don't want to over-fixate on those things because right. you know, that data does vary. Um, but at the same time, to get longitudinal data, data over time about how your body's operating is actually pretty easy to do right now. So none of us really, again, back to us in tech, we're all data folks. We ought to understand our data, including that about our own bodies. Great advice. Totally agree with that. Hey, one other one I mentioned, uh, Dr. Ron, was diabetes. And, and in some ethnic communities, there's more skew or let's just say a propensity for diabetic conditions than others. Um, so what, what can you say about that data? And then what in particular should we be doing to make sure that, you know, we're not in a situation where we would, uh, you know, become borderline or uh, absolute diabetic? Yeah, you know, so with diabetes, you know, diabetes and specifically heart disease, as we, as we talked about, is the number one killer. But in certain ethnic groups, diabetes can present in very... Um, in an early way and then in a very secretive fashion. And what I mean by that is often, for example, in individuals of East Asian or South Asian Indian ancestry, often it takes very little extra fat around the belly to actually trigger diabetes and heart disease. And this is a really important point, Alan, because many doctors that aren't even aware of this, they might often look at someone of Asian ancestry and say, hey, your body mass index looks great. You know, your blood sugar is okay right now. You look like you're low risk. But the thing is, if they're even carrying a little bit of extra belly fat, if they have a cholesterol marker called the triglycerides that's elevated, those are future harbingers for diabetes risk. So really, as we look at different ethnicities, we have to look at them with a different lens. So that, for example, the World Health Organization has set a different body mass index criteria for Asians versus non-Asians, because they had found that once the BMI starts getting above 22 or 23, heart disease and diabetes risk goes up. Even more important than actual total body weight is keeping track of that waistline. So the waistline and the belly fat we talked about already, but if you're feeling that your pants are getting tighter, you're seeing a little bit more fat around that area, I tell people that's one of the earliest risk factors for diabetes, even long before the triglycerides and the blood sugar go up. So we want to make sure we're managing that. So all the principles we talked about, about you know physical activity, nutrition, and then the stress and sleep are major, major factors. And again, emphasizing the fact that the tracking is so important. And the other thing, you know, for a lot of my patients that are real techies, because we, we talked about how we're all data junkies, and sometimes getting a periodic glucose or an A1C glucose test may not be enough. I've actually started putting a lot of my patients on continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. These have become much more accessible, and they're one of the greatest behavioral tools I've used in my experience as a doctor, because people wear this tool and they see that no matter how much they exercise and diet vigorously, when they go to bed after 10, 30, or 11 p.m., their blood sugar goes off the charts. When they're checking emails close to bedtime, regardless of how physically active and how well they ate, their glucose is up at three or four in the morning. So as much as I can make that point through a lecture or you know cite some research, when they see that number in their own body, they start to believe that, wow, my bedtimes and my emotions have as much impact on my blood sugar control than the food I put in my mouth and how much I'm moving my body. 
And so we 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 talked about prostate cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and I think another kind of major killer is respiratory illness. Is that right? Yeah, respiratory illness is another one, usually secondary to infection or smoking-related disorders. So, you know, lung health is really important. So we alluded to a little bit around aerobic fitness, and this is an area that I'm very passionate about because when you start quantifying this in today's kids and adults, a lot of us have lost significant amounts of aerobic fitness. Even when you talk to elite trainers, when they clock in, you know, half marathon and marathon times today compared to 20 years ago, it's shocking what a deficit in the times there have been. We've gotten slower and more aerobically unfit. And really, um, as we strengthen our lungs, that's one of the best ways to make our lungs resilient against infections, including COVID-19. We already talked about um, smoking. So obviously, if you're smoking, even socially smoking, you want to quit that altogether. And then the other thing that really resonates with a lot of us here in California with the fires is just being exposed to pollutants, right? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult now to exercise when the air quality is not numb sound. But I remind people that there are still things that you can do to stay active indoors and be physically active indoors. There's so many great tools and apps. I've been getting back into jump roping right now. So there's multiple things that we can do to get ourselves breathing better until hopefully the air clears up and then we can get outdoors and start taking in that fresh air. Back a little bit to our, our conversation about cancer. And I do hear people from time to time saying, hey, look, um, I don't smoke. I don't drink excessively. I get the exercise. But hey, I had family history of cancer. It's really just a genetic thing. There's not a lot you can do about it. Kind of this fatalistic attitude. Um, and, you know, kind of when your number's up, your number's up and you may get cancer and, you know, not much you can really do about it in terms of your own behavior. What do you think about that, Dr. Ron? Yeah, you know, I have been shocked over the years, just in my own practice, where I have seen patients coming in that have no family history of cancer, that have had early onset of breast cancer or colon cancer or something else. Um, you know, we're getting so many different views of cancer that we didn't see before. And as you look at the emerging science and data, we are really finding that obviously genetics is a risk factor. But again, I know I'm harping on this quite a bit, but the metabolic part of it is huge. So next to smoking, if you look at worldwide data, obesity and metabolic disorders, specifically insulin resistance, are the next key drivers for cancer. And to me, that's actually encouraging because those are two factors that we can control through lifestyle. You're absolutely right that a lot of people that have a very positive family history of cancer, they feel like they're predestined to get it. Same with diabetes and heart disease. But I always remind people that the vast majority of chronic health conditions from heart disease to Alzheimer's to you know diabetes, everything we've talked about, they can be prevented or significantly controlled just by managing those lifestyle factors. So again, coming back to screening, we talked about the importance of screening. But the second thing is when you're getting those metabolic numbers done, we're not just looking for diabetes and heart disease anymore. We're looking for future Alzheimer's and future cancer risk too. So make sure you manage those along as being a comprehensive cancer prevention strategy. Yeah, spot on. Know your numbers, get your screening. And, um, you know, you really can head off a lot of these things. And uh, you, uh, I'm sure, have spoken about there's a number of uh, cancers that uh, if you can diagnose them early, you know, you really can uh, manage to prolong life despite, uh, you know, that type of diagnosis, which uh, which is right. important. And I'm thinking about maybe one last question. And in this era of COVID, I mean, we're hearing so much information and perhaps in some case misinformation around vaccinations and, you know, when's the vaccine coming and how long will it take to get deployed and those kind of things. I just, you know, really curious to hear from Dr. Ron, you know, his views about 
Is it too early to really talk about a vaccine? And, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that, that's that, that's the million dollar question. And I wish I had a direct phone, phone line to Dr. Fauci or someone else. But I've talked to some experts that sit in this field. I don't have an inside track on this, but what I will tell you is that in general, you know, in vaccine, it's probably going to be a minimum of four to six months before we have something out, unless there are some surprises and other companies are ready to release something sooner. But our overall approach to basically the COVID vaccine, the first wave of it, is most likely going to be prioritizing that vaccine for first responder workers and those that are in a high risk category. But until that vaccine comes out and we as scientists and healthcare professionals are able to look at the data and analyze the safety, you know, we're assuming it's gonna be safe, but believe me, I mean, we're fast tracking the process right now, just given our pandemic environment. So this is gonna be a risk benefit analysis. And then we have to really sit down and see who are gonna be our first priority people to get these um, uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And from that point, we'll be gaining more experience about the vaccine and then a decision about whether we can disseminate it more broadly. So I know that's a general answer I'm giving you, but until we have more details, I I'm actually not just stressing about it. But one thing I will tell you is, um, and this is very interesting data we've seen with the flu shot, is our response to a vaccine is often dependent, again, on, on our lifestyle. So they did a fascinating study with flu shots and found that individuals that slept five to six hours or less, their body produced half as many antibodies when they got the flu shot. So literally what that means, Alan, is a flu shot is half as effective when you're chronically, chronically sleep deprived. And I'm very confident that that's probably going to be the case with the COVID-19 and similar vaccines. So I tell people, you know, we'll, we'll wait for this vaccine, you know, on bated breath. We'll wait for that to come out. But in the meantime, you want to optimize your body, your mind, your health, so you get the most vigorous and effective response from the vaccine when it is released. Well, you know, that's great advice. And uh, I'll uh, sneak in one more question about the flu shot. I mean, I've heard a lot where if there's any year we got to make sure you get it, this is the year. Tell us a little bit about why. Yes, please. On behalf of my healthcare colleagues, um, I cannot tell you how important it is to get the flu shot. And really the reason for this is it's important during any season, but as many of you know, the overlap in symptoms is significant. So clinically, it's very difficult to differentiate flu from COVID-19. There are some nuances to it, but you can imagine right now, one of our key you know, priorities in the healthcare system is we need to make sure we have enough space to treat the sickest and the illest. And if we have floods of people coming in who are not protected against flu and they're coming in with flu symptoms thinking they're having COVID, plus the COVID-19 volume comes in, we can really overstrain our healthcare system. And for, really for you as an individual patient, it's going to cause a lot of stress. If you get flu-like symptoms that could have been prevented by a vaccine, you're going to be wondering about COVID-19. Then all of a sudden you're going to be going through this whole process. So I think for your individual health, for the collective health of your loved ones around you who you don't want to pass the flu on to in the healthcare system, please, please, please do everything you can to get your flu shot done and protect everyone. Great advice. We are out of time. This went so quickly. But before we sign off, I want to give each of you a chance for closing thoughts. Dr. Ron, let's start with you. So this is an unprecedented time in our history right now. And when I have patients that are really struggling, sometimes I tell them that sometimes you want to reframe this by looking at the past. And what I mean by that is I think it would have been so neat if I had ancestors that left some documentation during the Spanish flu about how they got through the Spanish flu, despite not having things like Amazon and Netflix and DoorDash and remote working and schooling. A lot of the things that we complain about here today in our modern society in the midst of a pandemic are things that, you know, I can't imagine that my ancestors went through. And as a result of that, it inspired me to actually keep my own journal. And journaling has been a savior to me. I don't do it every day, 
but just writing down all my complex thoughts and emotions. I've literally started all my passages saying, dear future sinhas, because I'm hoping, you know, we're not going to have any more pandemics, but we know that it's going to happen. It's inevitable. But I'm hoping future generations can look at my passages and sort of see that, you know, this is what we did as a family to sort of, you know, get through this time. And by having that journal there, it's kind of a manifesto that, you know what, no matter how bad things are, I'm going to make it through this and I want to inspire future generations ahead. And then I look to the past and get inspired by the people before me that were able to still get through with so little. So so maybe that's a good closing thought for me to provide a little perspective around our moment in time. Wow, I love that. Okay, Alan, you get the last word. Well, look, uh, hard to take a last word uh, versus Dr. Ron. I mean, I want to thank him and his work and, and frankly, his uh, efforts in terms of just health education. Uh, well before COVID, but even in, uh, particularly in these difficult times. So it's uh, been a, a really a godsend to get a number of your advices and uh, thoughts about our own health. I guess the one thought that, that comes to mind is if you listen to this podcast and you heard one thing and said, you know, I ought to do that, or that's a good reminder, or sure, I'll get that done. Just one thing, just one thing make it happen. Just make it happen. Good health is a habit. It's not luck. It's not hope. It's a habit. It's things that you do that you incorporate into your life and you start with that first step. So I know I came uh, across a couple of uh, suggestions that Dr. Ron had that I'm going to take up, but I'll make a challenge to each and every one of you. Just start with one thing to invest in you. Invest in you, your family, your friends, and your community by taking that first step. Bob, back to you. Wow, such wise words. My sincere thanks to both of you. As we've said, one of the best things men and women can do for our health and our mental well-being is to get active. That may be one of the most difficult challenges of all, but it's worth it. As always, HPE offers many free wellness resources to you as an HPE employee. If you're outside the U.S., you'll find those resources on the Global Wellness page on HPE Insider. And if you're in the U.S., you'll find those links on HPE Wellness. Our thanks to Dr. Ron Sinha and Chief People Officer Alan May. And as always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Until next time, take care. Let's talk again soon.